6. I ask you to turn there. Be reading the first 19 verses, Proverbs 6, 1 through 19. Here are the sacred writings of our God. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. And in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run after evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tim. It's great to be back with you this morning, and uh, thankful for the time that we had in Romania. Uh, At the end of the service, I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, that that trip just briefly with you, but for this morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, keep your Bibles open to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. Uh, in Proverbs, we see the fool, we see the foolish ways here in Proverbs, and what we see isn't a pretty picture, especially when we see ourselves. It's hard But it is, in fact, good that in Proverbs, a believer is given an opportunity to see remaining folly in their own hearts. But in Proverbs, we also see a portrait of the wise one. We see a portrait of Jesus the Christ. And his portrait is full of wisdom and goodness and beauty and Thankfully, Scripture uh, also reveals that there, if there is any hope for the redeemed in, to, to grow in wisdom, it will be the work that Jesus does in us by His Spirit in step with His Word. So that, that is really good news. Now, 
the first 19 verses of Proverbs 6 addresses various topics, um, hasty promises, particularly with money, uh, laziness, crooked words, and discord among the body. And they seem to be disconnected in some ways they are, but there is a common theme that we see here in these verses. Each of these topics reveal the danger of folly. Uh, These topics point to wisdom, and each of these topics, if we're honest, convinces us of how much we desperately need Jesus. So, let's turn our attention first to verses 1 through 5. Here we see the fool is careless with his promises, particularly with money. Again, this exhortation is addressed to the son of the sage. Here a father is preparing his son for living a wise life. And to do that, folly must be avoided. Again, verse 1, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, And save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. And save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So, in in this situation, the wise father addresses his son's impulsive financial pledge to help a neighbor or friend or even a stranger. Um, In other words, what's being taught to the son applies to putting up security for anyone. Now, you have to keep in mind that the law instructed Israel to not loan money to any of God's people with interest. Uh, Exodus chapter 22 verse 25 says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. In addition to that, the Old Testament scriptures make it clear that God places a big value on helping the poor. Uh, Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-seven says, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Uh, Proverbs 14.21 says, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. So, be, be willing to help the poor by giving a loan without interest. Better yet, give freely and generously to help those in need expecting nothing in return. So that's the needed backdrop for what the wise father is teaching his son here. So what is the wise father teaching his son? It it seems that someone can't get a loan without a security pledge from another. And apparently the father is addressing a situation where the son did or may foolishly promise a security pledge. And in giving a security pledge, he is promising to give something 
that he really can't afford. He flippantly or carelessly made promises he cannot keep. He, he spoke and made promises before he really thought carefully about it. And it's these hasty promises that become a snare that brings ruin. So it, it's better to give without expecting anything in return, but don't, don't make a promise you can't afford to keep. Uh, let me give you uh, an example of a similar situation. Different, but similar. When Dave Dernlin and uh, Tim Pasma and I talked with Benny and Ioana Hunderic a year ago in Romania about their need for a house that will keep them warm in the winter, we, we did not promise that we would come up with the money to build their house. Obviously, uh, none of us could afford that on our own. So we were very careful to not make promises that we could not keep. So here, here is what we did promise. We promise we will pray about it. Uh, we will talk with other churches that know you well and ask them to pray. And let's, let's see what God will do. Um, we articulated there are no guarantees. We, we said if you end up with money, enough money to build a house, it will be because God gave his people the ability and the desire to give. And, and in fact, you as a church gave generously to help the Hondericks. Pray, praise God for that. Again, the situation that I mentioned is a bit different, but the principle really is the same. If we had promised to provide the funds, we would have put ourselves in a real pinch. Uh, we, we would have made a promise that we could not keep. And for the sake of our integrity, we, we would have had to sell our house to fulfill our promise, and that would have been creating problems for our family. So the, the wise father teaches his son, if you find yourself in a situation where you made a careless promise, that you cannot keep. Don't sleep till you urgently and hastily find a way out of that commitment. So if you don't, you will be caught in a snare which will bring great ruin. So the exhortation is avoid the folly of making hasty promises that you cannot keep. Now, one of the, one of the things that Jesus teaches us is that all of Scripture points to him. Uh, in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, Jesus says this to the, the Jews. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. If they keep the Scriptures, they'll have eternal life. Jesus goes on, And it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So all of Scripture bears witness about Jesus. Uh, on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus reiterated that truth to those two disciples that he was walking with there in Luke 24. So it's important to read Proverbs and see our, our own remaining sin or remaining uh, foolish ways. It's also even more important to read Proverbs and see a portrait 
of Jesus. So the question is, what do these first five verses reveal about Jesus? And here's what I would say. Thankfully, you are served by Jesus who revealed wisdom by becoming poor so that you could become rich. So Jesus fully understood and was fully prepared to pay in full the debt of your sin. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus was not careless or hasty or flippant when he promised eternal life to all who believe. He he knew that he came to this earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross to atone for our sin. He, He counted the cost. He understood the cost. He willingly gave up his life to redeem us from our sins. And though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. That is grace. That is unmerited favor. That is a lavish and generous gift given to undeserving recipients. Thank, thank you, Jesus, for that indescribable gift. So Proverbs exposes our sin. Proverbs also reveals a portrait of Christ in all of his wisdom. And in light of that, it, it's good for us to consider that if you have life in Jesus, what will he produce in you? Um, earlier I quoted 2 Corinthians 8-9. Let me say it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians to make an appeal to the Corinthian church to excel in the grace of giving generously. And in that context, Paul says this a few verses later in chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. Let me read that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The the focus there is between you and God, you need to decide in your own heart what to give. God loves a generous giver, a cheerful giver, but it's between you and God to decide. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which 
through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, the service of giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, your gift that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This passage helps us to see that generous giving to help others is really a fruit of the gospel. We give generously because Jesus has given so generously and lavishly to us. That's the work that God does for those who are alive in Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. And the result is many thanksgivings to God. Again, That is good news. God wants all of us to be cheerful and generous givers. And I've seen that in you as a church again and again. And so to to God be the glory for that. But there is more. Look with me at verses 6 through 11. Here we learn that the fool is lazy. Uh, Verse 6 says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without have any, having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So, the, the sluggard can learn from the ant. And there are many uh, humorous descriptions of the sluggard in Proverbs. And actually, they would be humorous if they were not true, but they are tragically true, and there's a bit of them that can even be in us. But Proverbs 19.24 says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. That's a pretty pathetic picture of someone who can't even do normal activities necessary for life. Um, and Proverbs twenty six fourteen, we see that as a door turns on the hinges, so a sluggard on his bed. So you don't, you don't get much work done if you stay in bed all day. Turning from one side to the other side uh, is, is all the sluggard will do. Proverbs 22, verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. So the most work a sluggard will do is make up fanciful excuses for why he can't work. And and because of that, this text tells us there will be a lot of disappointment and unmet expectations in the life of the sluggard. Proverbs 20 verse 4 says, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Again, as we read Proverbs 6, verses 10 and 11, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, 
and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So the, the sluggard is the epitome of laziness. Um, the, the sluggard fails to do the work that is needed to live. The sluggard can make tons of excuses for why he can't do the things that he or she should be doing in life. The, the sluggard neglects daily responsibilities because of his or her laziness. So the sluggard must learn from the ant. <laughs> like the ant, diligently do your work without being prodded to work by someone else. Take, take initiative to do the responsible thing. When it's time to make hay, make hay. Don't shy away from hard things. Don't wait till tomorrow to do what you can or should do today. So, let me ask you, are you hard-working and diligent like the ant? <laughs> or are there times when a little bit of, or maybe even a lot of the sluggard is in you? Um, and, and yes, sometimes it is not easy to know where the line is between getting needed rest and sleep and when you must push hard to get work done. Um, I question that in my own life this past week as I've been recovering from being sick on the trip, recovering from jet lag, eight hours difference. Um, it, it seems like it's a little bit more difficult to recover from that eight-hour jet lag than it used to be 20 years ago. So there's this, you wrestle with that line a little bit of, do I need to rest or do I need to push on? And we need wisdom and discernment for that. Thankfully, thankfully, you are served by Jesus who revealed wisdom through his faithful work at just the right time. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, so at just the right time, not too early, not too late, just at the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus was aware, fully aware, of the work he was to do at just the right time. Uh, in John chapter 2, verse 4, when the mother of Jesus expected him to provide wine at the wedding, Jesus told his mother, my hour has not yet come. In John 7, 6, Jesus' earthly brothers and sisters, his mother, were urging him to go to Jerusalem to reveal his works, if he really was the person that he claimed to be. But Jesus responded to them and said, my time has not yet come come. But when it was time to do the work his father had given him to do, Jesus did it faithfully. In his high priestly prayer found in John 17, Jesus said to his father, I glorified you on earth by having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus tirelessly served others for their good and his father's glory. And he did that so much that his own earthly family pleaded with, him, pleaded with him to come away from ministry to get some rest. They, they thought he was out of his mind because of his tireless work. Jesus labored hard 
when the disciples continued to fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus persisted in prayer, for he knew the time was at hand to do the work of obeying the Father by laying down his life on the cross for sinners. So the question is, if you have life in Jesus, what will he produce in you? Paul says in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, him, that is Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was his ministry. Verse 29, he says this, for I toil, that he works hard, I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. So it's his energy, the energy of Christ that enabled Paul to labor hard. Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I love that picture of working out your salvation because it is God who is at work in you uh, to accomplish that. Philippians 4.13, that Paul says that even in times when he lived with hunger pains, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When Paul had a thorn in his flesh and felt weak, he asked Jesus to remove that pesty thorn. And Jesus answered by saying in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So in each one of these verses, the Apostle Paul teaches us that being faithful as a disciple-maker of Jesus, Jesus Christ requires living in total and complete dependence upon Jesus for enabling power. We, we can't do the work that Christ has called us to do in our own strength. We can't do it. We are utterly dependent upon the enablement of, of the Holy Spirit to do the work Jesus has called us to do. Only, only with the help of Jesus can we accomplish 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the fool is lazy, but those alive in Christ work hard with the very strength that God provides. That that is good news. But Again, there's more. We learn in verses 12 through 15 that the fool's words cannot be trusted. Verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly in a moment. He will be broken beyond healing. So, the fool or the worthless person, the wicked man, says one thing and means another. That, that is why he winks with his eyes, he signals with his hands and his feet when he talks. His speech is crooked, his words are deceitful, his words are lies, he can't be trusted. This kind of talk sows 
discord among people, and in the end, calamity will come. The question is, why does this deceitful talk take place? Well, John chapter 8, verses 43 and 44 explain why. Jesus said to the Jews who were questioning him, why, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the, the person who is not a truth teller, um, if there is someone who isn't a truth teller, it says a lot about their heart that is not good. Um, thankfully, you are served by Jesus who revealed wisdom by always speaking the truth. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus, when praying to His Father, said this in John 17. Three in the high priestly prayer, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then in verse 17 of that same chapter, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Christ and his word is truth and can be trusted completely. God doesn't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. The, the fool speaks crooked words, lies, and can't be trusted. Jesus always speaks the truth. And because of that, if you have life in Jesus, what, what will he produce in you? Well, Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 tell us one of those things. It says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, who never lies, who always tells the truth. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members one of another. So truth-telling is a fruit of the gospel at work in your lives. There's one final thing that we learn about the fool in verses 16 through 19. Uh, the fool does many things that divide the body. Verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. So the mention of six things that the Lord hates is not intended to be an exhaustive list. It represents a summary of what God hates. Pride, lies, murders, wickedness, evil. That's a pretty serious list of sins. But then 
the, the mention of an additional seventh item becomes the focus. This numeric literary device of six plus one draws attention to the seventh thing mentioned, which is this, one who sows discord among brothers. So a person who is divisive in the church and plants seeds of division in the church is an abomination to the Lord. That is strong language that we, we must not overlook. There, there are many things, there are many things that cause division in the church, like pride. Pride manifests itself in a number of different ways, thinking that you're better than others, thinking that your ways or ideas are better than others, thinking that you are always right, uh, not being open to reason, thinking that you, you are too good to serve others, always insisting on your own way, having selfish ambition, seeking your own glory rather than the good of others and the glory of our redeeming God. Pride causes lots of problems. So do lies, not being honest, gossip, slander, speaking unwholesome, unedifying words to others, uh, hatred, uh, which manifests itself in jealousy, bitterness, failure to love, words that attack people. Th these are just some of the kinds of things that do harm to the church. God cares about the unity of the church. And the reason for that is this, that Jesus shed his blood so we could have peace with God and so that we could have peace with one another. Um, left to ourselves, <laughs> there, there would be no hope for unity amongst such a diverse group of people like we are, though that we're not, not, number, or not many in number. There, there are many different kinds of people here this morning, but it's in Christ where we find unity. Thankfully, Thankfully, you are served by Jesus who revealed wisdom by being the ultimate peacemaker. Uh, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, added to that, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, a lengthier passage. Let me read that for you. It describes the peace that we have because of the work that Jesus uh, did on the cross, the peace that we have with one another. Verse 11 of Ephesians 2 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, 
so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So unity in the church is so important because of the work that Christ did to give us peace. And in the church, the church is being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. So unity is really, or disunity, division, is an attack upon the work that Christ came to do. So if If you have life in Jesus, what will he produce in your life? Well, in the Corinthian church that struggled with divisions, Paul said this in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So, In light of all of the different gifts, all of the different people, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. This is a command, and the Holy Spirit will enable us to do that. Unity in the church is a fruit of the gospel at work in our midst. That is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, at a key transition point in this letter, chapters 1, 2, and 3, he describes all of the blessings that are ours in Christ. We're richly blessed in Christ. And then when we come to chapter 4, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So you've been blessed in Christ. You have been called to belong to Christ. How shall you now live? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what we're called to do, and, and that is what becomes a fruit of the gospel at work in our lives. And so in light of all of this, Romans Chapter 15, verses 5 through 6, is my prayer for you this morning. Romans 15, verse 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to, and that's what we are enabled to do because of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. So in in conclusion, two questions, two um, 
overall questions with some sub-questions. Um, first of all, when, when you read Proverbs, like here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 19, do, do you see how the character of a fool is exposed? Um, let me ask you this, even more personally. Are, are you willing, as you read through Proverbs, are you willing to look into the mirror of God's Word and be honest about remnants of folly that may still exist in your own heart and life? And, and as, I, as, I, as I ask that question, we must be humble, and we must remember that the cross of Jesus makes a declaration that all of us need to be rescued from our own sin against God and our progressive sanctification will continue until we're in the presence of Jesus. So none of us have arrived yet. So none of us should be surprised if the Spirit uses the Word of God to expose remaining sin in us. We shouldn't be surprised by that. And when the Spirit does expose your own sin... Run to Jesus. <laughs> Run to Jesus. Repent. Cry out to Him for mercy. Thank Him for the forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of Jesus. And, and ask Him to help you to change and grow. So, if we interact with Proverbs, we're, we're going to see we're going to see the fool and we're going to have opportunities to see remnants of the foolish ways still in our hearts. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But secondly, when you read Proverbs, do you see portraits of our Savior, Jesus the Christ? Do you see wisdom? Do you, do you see the wisdom, the goodness, the beauty of Jesus? Do, do you see the life that Jesus wants to produce in you? Are, are you depending upon the Spirit's work in you so that you can learn from Jesus and follow Jesus in an ever-increasing way. You, you were created, you were redeemed for this very purpose, to reflect the character of Jesus for the praise of God's glory. And may God help all of us to continue in that journey. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to you that you always speak the truth and your word does not lie. And when we open up your word, we see the fool, we see foolishness, and as your word serves as a mirror, we, we have opportunities to see remnants of foolishness even in us. Father, make us all willing to look into the mirror of your word. Give us humble hearts that are correctable and teachable. Help us to find hope, forgiveness, power to change in the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. Father, help us also as we open up your word 
to see the beauty of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus. Help us to see that we, we desperately need Jesus. We, we depend upon the atoning work of his, uh, of, of his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. We need the Holy Spirit to continue that work of transformation in us. Teach us to be a people who have less and less confidence in our own selves and more and more confidence in you and the work that you've begun in us and the work that you will continue in us. And Father, as we respond to your Spirit, as you use your, your Spirit to and your Word to expose sin in us and to reveal the hope of Jesus, help us to be a people who... who find comfort in the gospel, find hope for the days ahead, not because of our own goodness, but because of the goodness and the wisdom of Jesus. Help us to go from here today looking to Jesus, finding hope in him, confident in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.